0: The president has few responsibilities of greater importance or greater consequence to the country's future than the constitutional responsibility of nominating justices for the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme
1: Court of the United States. Nine men, high in government, who sit in judgment on many of the great questions before our nation. The United States Supreme Court first came into being under the terms of Article Three of the Constitution of the United States in 1789 when the government was formed. Under the new Constitution, there was to be a Congress with wide legislative powers and a chief executive, a president, similarly and clearly charged with the highest duties. The third branch of the new government, the judiciary, took the form of a Supreme Court made up of justices holding office for life, independent of the other branches of government, but equal to them. The power and the responsibilities of the court were touched upon only briefly. The Supreme Court was, from the very beginning, a subject of controversy, a point of debate in the first session of Congress.
2: This department, I dread, is an awful tribunal. By its institution, the judges are completely independent and removable only
3: by impeachment. The Supreme Court is necessary to guard the rights of the Union against the invasion of the states. If a state should attempt to strip the federal government of its constitutional rights, it is necessary that the National Tribunal have the power of protecting those rights. It is certainly
4: a vile law system, so confused and so obscure. It is calculated for expense and with a design to draw by degrees all law business into the federal courts. The Constitution is
3: meant to swallow the states. Whenever the federal judiciary comes into operation, I think the pride of the states will take alarm. The judiciary wears so monstrous an appearance. And the salaries, I think, are rather high, so in my George Washington, as the
1: first president of our nation, must appoint the members of the new court.
3: I have
2: considered the first arrangement of the Judicial Department as essential to the happiness of our country and the stability of its political system. Hence, the selection of the fittest characters to expound the laws and dispense justice... Has been an invariable subject of my anxious concern. Special to the New York Daily Advertiser, Monday,
5: February 1st, 1790. The courtroom at the exchange was uncommonly crowded. The mayor of New York, the sheriff, and many other officers, and a great number of the gentlemen of the bar attended on the occasion. Proclamation was made for silence upon pain of imprisonment, while the letters of patent for the justices were openly read the judges appeared in their robes of justice, the elegance, gravity, and neatness of which were the subject of remark and approbation with every spectator.
1: During its first ten years, however, the Supreme Court played a minor and uncertain role in the affairs of the nation.
4: To the National Intelligencer, Washington, March 2nd, 1799, the building of the new national capital at Washington is nearly completed. But the Supreme Tribunal is entirely forgotten in the plans and no chamber provided for it. The court has crept into an humble apartment in the basement beneath the Senate chamber.
1: In this dark cellar, the members of the court met for only a few weeks each year, and this was sufficient for the business at hand. No one seemed entirely certain what the court was to do, and few seemed to care. In fact, in these early days, The justices were better known as politicians than as men of law. All were members of the Federalist Party which as the name implies favored a strong federal government and in 1800 many of them actively campaigned for the Federalists and for the re-election of President John Adams. But the revolution of 1800, as the election of that year is often called, was a disaster for the Federalists. The Anti-Federalists, led by Thomas Jefferson, gained control of the Congress, and Jefferson himself was elected President of the United States. Still, President Adams, in defeat, was determined to leave behind him in government as many Federalists as he had the power to appoint. As chance would have it, the important office of Chief Justice of the United States was vacant and Adams appointed to the post John Marshall his Secretary of State and a staunch Federalist. Marshall and incoming President Jefferson were fellow Virginians and they were cousins but they did not think very highly of one another.
3: To Mr. Jefferson I have almost insuperable objections. His prejudices seem to me totally to unfit him for the chief magistracy. By weakening the office of president, he will increase his personal power. He will sap the fundamental principles of government. The morals of the man cannot be pure. Mr. Marshall? His lax,
4: lounging manners have made him popular with the bulk of the people and a profound hypocrisy with many thinking men of our country. But the latter will see that it is high time to make him known. Nothing should be spared to eradicate the spirit of martialism.
1: President Jefferson asked Congress to curtail the powers and privileges of the Supreme Court justices, which Congress did at once. Chief Justice Marshall, in the weaker position, knew that his first job was to demonstrate that the Court could and would speak in a strong and independent voice. He found his opportunity in a case pending before the Court, the now famous case of Marbury versus Madison.
2: To the American Daily Advertiser, Monday, February 15th, 1803. It is expected that business of much importance will come before the Supreme Court of the United States, now sitting at Washington. The affair of Mr. Marbury appears to be of great
1: consequence. William Marbury had been appointed a Justice of the Peace by President Adams, but the appointment had been denied to him by President Jefferson and members of the new administration. Marbury then sued Jefferson's Secretary of State, James Madison, in an attempt to force the delivery of his appointment. The case came before the Supreme Court, because under a provision of the Judiciary Act passed by the Congress in 1791, The court had been given the power to decide lawsuits of this kind. But the court, after studying the matter, decided that this provision of the Act ran counter to the Constitution and therefore was null and void. Thus they were not in a position to rule on Marbury's case. In the end, Marbury never did get his appointment, but his case, from a legal point of view, had raised an issue of the greatest importance did the Supreme Court have the power to review actions of the Congress and, if it so decided, find them unconstitutional and thus void? It was to this point that Chief Justice Marshall spoke when he delivered the decision of the court on February the 24th, 1803.
3: (coughs) The announcement of the opinion and decision of the court will now be read. It is a proposition too plain to be contested, the Constitution controls any legislative act repugnant to it. An act of the legislature repugnant to the Constitution is void. The government of the United States has been emphatically termed a government of laws and not of men. It is the province and the duty of the judicial department To say what the law is. If a law be in opposition to the Constitution, the court must decide. This theory is essentially attached to a written Constitution and is consequently to be considered by this court as one of the fundamental principles of society.
1: Chief Justice Marshall had taken the opportunity presented by the Marbury case to tell the country, and in particular President Jefferson, that the court was the principal authority on the Constitution and would accordingly review acts of Congress and the President and of the several states. President Jefferson did not agree, and he spoke against the court.
4: The opinion which gives to the judges the right to decide what laws are constitutional and what not would make the judiciary a despotic branch. Nothing in the Constitution has given them a right to decide for the executive.
1: In Congress, Senator Giles, among others, attacked the justices. If
5: the judges of the
1: Supreme Court should dare,
5: as they have done, to declare acts of Congress unconstitutional, it is the undoubted right of Congress to impeach them
1: and remove them for giving such opinions. In 1805, Associate Justice Chase was impeached, charged with high crimes and misdemeanors. But he was not convicted. He remained on the court and the storm died down. The court had made its point. Some single body must be able to say with final authority what is and what is not law throughout the Republic or there would be chaos. This, to Marshall, was the right and indeed the duty of the Supreme Court, and he said so clearly and firmly. Thus the doctrine known as judicial review was established. The stage was set for the transformation of a weak, uncertain court into the powerful and respected institution we take for granted today. The court was not to strike down another act of Congress for 50 years. But under the doctrine of judicial review, the power was there and indeed it came to be used frequently against the states. That the court had acquired new prestige was apparent in the very atmosphere of the Capitol. People talked about the court now and came to look and to listen, much to the surprise of Associate Justice Joseph Story.
2: When I went into the Court of Justice yesterday, one side of the colonnade was occupied by a party of ladies. "'Scarcely a day passes in which parties of ladies "'do not come and hear for a while "'the arguments of learned counsel. "'On the opposite side was a group of Indians "'who were here on a visit to the President, "'the papa of the savages, "'with moccasins on their feet, rings in their ears and noses, "'and large plates of silver on their arms and breasts. "'And when we go abroad, "'our rank claims and obtains the public respect.'
1: The most eminent lawyers now appeared in argument before the court, a sure sign of truly important business. Daniel Webster, a leading practitioner of 19th century legal oratory, appeared quite frequently. In 1819, he argued the famous case for Dartmouth College in New Hampshire.
4: This, sir, is my case. It is not merely the case of that humble institution. It is the case of every college in the land. Sir, you may destroy this little institution. It is weak. It is in your hands. I know that it is one of the lesser lights in the literary horizon of the country. You may put it out. But if you do so, you must carry through your work. You must extinguish, one after another, all those great lights of science, which for more than a century have thrown their radiance over our land. It is, sir, as I have said, a small college. And yet, there are those that love it.
1: An observer in the courtroom that day, Professor Goodrich of Yale University, described the scene. At the close, Webster, a consummate actor, appeared to break down.
5: His lips quivered, his voice choked, his eyes filled with tears. Chief Justice Marshall bent his tall, gaunt figure forward as if straining to catch every word. His eyes seemed wet. Justice Storey still sat, pen in hand, as if to take notes which he never took. The rest of the Justices, too, uh,
1: appeared to be transfixed. Such oratory in its time packed the courtroom and filled newspaper columns around the country with news of the Supreme Court. This was valuable publicity for a court still little known and little understood away from the cities of the East. But this too was changing. Representative Smith, a raw young congressman from the new state of Indiana, went first to see the court upon arriving in Washington, and he gave a humorous and vivid impression of the nation's highest judicial body in the 1820s.
4: I entered the courtroom as the hand of the clock was pointed to eleven. The judges were just coming in from their side room. The uh, marshal of the court met them and robed them with long black silk gowns, tied at the neck and reaching to the feet. I had never seen anything like it before. It reminded me of the man who, having repeated several times that he would die at the stake for the religion of his father, was asked, What was your father's religion? I do not exactly know, he said, but it was something very solemn. And so with me, I did not exactly know what the gowns were for, but I thought the court looked very solemn.
1: Under Chief Justice Marshall, the court's greatest task was the establishment of its own power and prestige. Once this was well underway, the court's special mission was the use of its power to build a strong federal government. The great danger in these first years of the Republic was that the states, acting independently out of habit, would weaken, perhaps even destroy, the national government in Washington. Case after case came before the Supreme Court pitting the power of a state against the rights of the federal government. Armed with the Constitution, the Court, led by Chief Justice Marshall, struck down state laws which they felt threatened national power. And bit by bit, the Court built the national government of wide powers, which we know today.
5: March 16, 1810, Fletcher versus Peck. The announcement of the opinion
3: decision of the Court. The acts of the legislature of Georgia are repugnant to the Constitution of the United States. It is considered, ordered, and adjudged by this court, now here, that the same are reversed and annulled.
5: March 6th, 1819. McCullough versus the state of Maryland. In our the decision.
3: We are unanimously of the opinion that the law passed by the state of Maryland is unconstitutional and void. This is the unavoidable consequence of that federal supremacy which the Constitution has declared. March 2nd, 1824. Gibbons versus Ogden. The Act of New York must yield to the law of Congress. In every such case, the Act of Congress is supreme and the law of the state must yield to it. Special to the Kentucky
2: Gazette, our readers have noticed of late that at almost every session of the Supreme Court, the laws of the states are treated in a manner that does no credit to the motives or understanding of our state legislatures. The court can settle some disputed cases, but the principles upon which it has acted are so broad that it begins to look like the old iron bedstead that accommodated every person by stretching or lopping off a limb.
4: (laughs) (laughs) To the New York Daily Advertiser, January 6th, 1831. The Supreme Court has met, under very peculiar and trying circumstances, with the knowledge that it will be violently assailed in Congress and that an attempt will be made to deprive it of its right to decide on the constitutionality of state laws. A bill to that effect will be reported in a few days.
1: Faced with opposition in the Congress and the White House and talk of rebellion and nullification in the states, particularly the southern states, Chief Justice Marshall, now nearly 80, despaired of his life's work. The union, it seemed, was still a fragile thing.
3: I yield slowly and reluctantly to the conviction that our Constitution cannot last. I had supposed that north of the Potomac a firm and solid government might be preserved. Even that now seems doubtful. The case of the South seems to me to be desperate. Our opinions are incompatible with a united government among ourselves. The Union has been prolonged thus far by miracles. I fear they cannot continue.
1: Chief Justice Marshall died soon afterward in 1835. He had led the court for 34 years through five presidential administrations. In Congress, he was eulogized. If John Marshall had not been Chief Justice of the United States, the
5: Union would have fallen to pieces before the general government had got well underway. John Marshall has saved the Union, if it is
1: saved. If it is saved. That indeed was the question which hung over the nation in the years after Chief Justice Marshall's death. Marshall's successor, Chief Justice Roger Taney was a moderate man. He was not inclined to press much further the claims of the federal government against the states and for 10 years there was calm. Beneath the surface of this calm, however, there grew an issue capable of destroying the union. As early as 1839, Justice Joseph story saw this.
2: The question of slavery is becoming more and more an absorbing one, and will, if it continues to extend its influence, lead to a dissolution of the Union. At least, there are many of our soundest statesmen who look to this possible event.
1: These were prophetic words. Feelings about slavery deeply divided the nation in the 1850s. The President and the Congress were helpless, they could do nothing which satisfied a majority on either side of the issue. The court was called upon to act as though it could in some way sweep away the conflict with a single great pronouncement.
4: To the National Intelligence, Monday, February the 11th, 1856. A suit for freedom before the Supreme Court, prosecuted by Dred Scott, a Negro, Involves questions of much political interest and will unquestionably... The
1: Supreme Court was, willingly or unwillingly, faced with the great issue of slavery in the famous Dred Scott case. Almost any decision was likely to split the nation in two. And the decision here, delivered by Chief Justice Taney, was a disaster for the prestige of the Supreme Court and for the Union itself. The court ruled that Congress could not prohibit slavery anywhere in the country, And in any case, no Negro born in slavery was or ever could be a citizen. This was too much for the North. The court was ignored, vilified, and sank into disrepute. Just a few years later, Abraham Lincoln ran for president on a platform which expressly repudiated the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision, and he won. Then the Union did indeed break apart, and the fears of John Marshall were realized. The Civil War settled forever the question of union as it settled the question of slavery on the battlefield. Never again would a state leave the union or refuse to abide by its laws. Years later, in a tribute to John Marshall,
3: Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes looked back. Time has been on Marshall's side, and the theory for which he argued and Lincoln died is now our cornerstone. When we celebrate Marshall, we celebrate at the same time the oneness of the nation, the supremacy of the Constitution, and the judgments and decrees of the most august of courts. After
1: the Civil War, the nation and the court, both battered by the experience, could start anew. The United States was rapidly becoming an industrial power with great new business concerns and a large working class. Problems of economic and social justice would soon press in upon the government and the Supreme Court, once again a strong and active court, would play a major role in America's emergence as a modern nation.
6: I want, as all Americans want, an independent judiciary as proposed by the framers of the Constitution. That means a Supreme Court that will enforce the Constitution as written. It does not mean a judiciary so independent that it can deny the existence of facts which are universally recognized. But since the rise of the modern movement for social and economic progress through legislation, the court has more and more often and more and more boldly asserted a power to veto laws passed by the Congress and by state legislatures. The court has been acting not as a judicial body, but as a policy-making
1: body. The speaker, Franklin D. Roosevelt the time, 1937. The United States was struggling to rise out of the Great Depression, the severest economic crisis we have ever known. Yet the Supreme Court, at odds with both the President and the Congress, refused to accept the constitutionality of New Deal measures passed overwhelmingly by Congress to meet the crisis. This confrontation was to be the end of a long chapter in the history of the Court. Alpheus T. Mason, a leading student of the court and for many years McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University,
7: comments. The conflict President Roosevelt describes dates from the last quarter of the 19th century. The story might be entitled, The Rise and Fall of Judicial Preeminence. Its theme, who was to have the final voice in the social and economic development of the nation? the President and Congress, elected by all the people, or the justices of the Supreme Court, appointed for life and immune from popular control. At the close of the Civil War, the ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment to the Constitution set the stage for the conflict. The Fourteenth Amendment's immediate objective was to provide national protection for the newly freed slaves but its sweeping provisions suggest broader objectives. The states were prevented from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and forbidden to deny any person equal protection of the laws. These broad-gauge limitations on state power, transcending the status of Negro Americans, raised important questions which only the Supreme Court could answer. Could it be argued, for instance, that the country's new and increasingly powerful corporations should be considered persons, thus making state laws regulating rates and profits and business activity void because they deprive such persons of property? The Supreme Court at first refused to interpret the new amendment so strictly they would not become a perpetual censor of state legislation. To do so, Justice Miller declared, for a 5-4 majority would fetter and degrade the state governments. And in the late 1870s, with the famous Granger cases, the courts seemed to establish a judicial hands-off policy with respect to social and economic legislation. A state could regulate business activity... The court said, and if the regulation seemed harmful or unreasonable, those who thought so should seek remedy at the polls, not in the United States Supreme Court. This was not the business of the court. The matter was not closed, however. Within the court itself, there was sharp disagreement, and the decisions produced a loud and persistent outcry from the business community now faced with a rising tide of unwelcome regulatory legislation. Some proposed a new constitutional amendment safeguarding property from such legislation. But the ink was hardly dry on this proposal when it became clear that it would not be necessary. The mood of the court had changed in response to the demands of the business community. Now the Court looked with disfavor on social and economic legislation by the States, and by the United States Congress as well. In the 1890s, the Court all but destroyed the new Sherman Antitrust Act by a rigid interpretation of its terms, and it outlawed the federal income tax law. Both these measures had been designed by Congress to increase government control of the economy. Under the leadership of lawyers and judges, the social and economic reform measures of the time, inspired by populism, progressivism, and later by Woodrow Wilson's new freedom, were largely dissipated. Supreme Court justices became super legislators. Property rights found in the judiciary an effective instrument for defeating regulation of the economy. On the court, a narrow majority of justices stalled the march of economic democracy. Child labor legislation and minimum wage laws for women in industry, to name only two examples, failed to pass judicial muster. Meanwhile, exponents of judicial self-restraint had not been silenced the justices were warned not to step into the shoes of the lawmaker by ruling against laws passed in Congress and in the state legislatures by the elected representatives of the people. And within the court, Justices Holmes, Brandeis, and Stone, in particular, kept up a drive for judicial humility. The issue came to a head in 1935 and 1936, when the court persistently challenged the constitutionality of New Deal legislation. In one term, 11 acts of Congress designed to meet the crisis of the Great Depression fell under the judicial acts. Justice Stone called 1935-36 the most disastrous year in the court's history. An obtuse majority set aside a state minimum wage law for women, nullified congressional efforts to revive sorely depressed agriculture, and vetoed an attempt to bring order into the chaotic coal industry. We seem, Justice Stone sadly declared, to have tied Uncle Sam up in a hard knot. This impasse between legislature and court provoked President Roosevelt's court-packing proposal, precipitating an historic contest in which both sides lost, both won. FDR's plan, which might have increased the membership on the court to 15 justices, thus assuring a majority for the proponents of judicial self-restraint, was defeated but the example of such determined opposition was not lost on the court. Two justices, without fanfare, shifted their position and voted in favor of New Deal legislation. The president finally achieved judicial endorsement of his social and economic policies, evoking the famous quip that a switch in time saves nines. After nearly half a century, the judiciary had abandoned its self-acquired role as arbiter of social and economic policy, but the court as an institution did not abdicate. Soon it would find other interests to guard. This was the end of an era,
1: but it was in many respects the beginning of the modern Supreme Court. The justices turned to basic constitutional issues never completely out of sight, but now requiring their very special attention. We recognize these continuing concerns as preeminently those of our own time.
6: In my opinion, the Bill of Rights is the most important part of the Constitution of the United States. It's the only document in the world that protects the citizen against his government. We venerate these documents not because they are old, not because they are valuable historical relics, but because they still have meaning for us. We acknowledge our judges as the interpreters of the Constitution.
1: President Harry Truman often commented on the constitutional guarantees of the Bill of Rights. The Supreme Court has increasingly given its attention to cases which turn on a present day interpretation of the civil liberties enumerated in the Constitution, and especially in the Bill of Rights. Alan Weston, Professor of Public Law at Columbia University, is director of the Center for Research in American Liberties in New York. Professor Weston comments on the court and civil liberties.
8: Most Americans know that the basic guarantees of the Bill of Rights were put into the Federal Constitution in 1791, with major additions through the Civil War Amendments of 1865 to 70. But it is only since the 1930s that the United States Supreme Court has moved into an active and positive role in protecting the civil liberties of national citizenship. Of course, there were some civil liberties cases decided by the Supreme Court before the 1930s. Free speech problems during World War I, telephone-tapping cases during the 1920s, and police third-degree practices in the 1920s and 30s. But it has been primarily since the 1930s that America has become a truly national society. People on the move in education and jobs from place to place, reading a national press, seeing the same national TV programs in one national advertising culture. In this setting, Americans have come to expect a national set of constitutional rights as well, The same for Chicago, as for Boston and Houston. Then too, as American ideas of equality have changed in the past two to three decades, public opinion has begun to feel that there should be the same set of constitutional rights in our legal system for the poor and the black, as well as for the rich and the white. Finally, whenever the elected branches of government, Congress, the president, and the states, find themselves in such a political stalemate that they cannot act to protect civil liberties or civil rights, the American people have come increasingly to feel that this becomes a responsibility of the courts. What kinds of civil liberties cases has the new Supreme Court of our era been deciding? In 1961, the Supreme Court held in Map v. Ohio that when city or state police use unconstitutional methods to obtain evidence, as by conducting searches of a person's home without a judicial warrant or by using illegal wiretapping in violation of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, such evidence simply cannot be used in state or federal courts. In 1963, for example, the justices held in Gideon v. Wainwright that a citizen without financial resources had to be provided with a lawyer by the state if he was to enjoy the right to counsel and the fair trial that the Sixth Amendment to our Constitution guarantees. In 1952, in Burston versus Wilson, the Supreme Court held that motion pictures, as well as newspapers, books, and other written media, were protected by the free speech and free press guarantees of the First Amendment. Since 1952, the Supreme Court has struck down many censorship actions against particular movies, though it has upheld the general right of states and municipalities to require licensing of motion pictures. Free press has also been strengthened by the court's ruling in 1964 in New York Times v. Sullivan, protecting newspapers which publish comment about public officials against libel suits for honest errors. In the areas of separation between church and state and freedom of religion, both guaranteed by the First Amendment, the Supreme Court decided in 1962 in Engel v. Vitale that a prayer composed by state authorities in New York could not be used as a general exercise in the public schools. The right to vote, protected by the 14th Amendment, was expanded considerably when the Supreme Court in the 1940s struck down racial restrictions such as the Southern White Primary. This right was also expanded when the court held that electoral districts for Congress or state legislatures had to be relatively equal in voter populations so that 100,000 rural voters did not elect one congressman, while a city congressional district had 500,000 or a million voters in it. In the loyalty security area, the Supreme Court has upheld the basic power of the government to protect itself against disloyal acts and to ensure fidelity among government employees. But it has handed down a stream of rulings in the past decade that have struck down state loyalty oaths or legislative investigations in Congress or by the state legislatures that have limited freedom of expression improperly in the name of loyalty security measures. The right to protest by picketing, marching, and holding demonstrations has been expanded greatly by recent Supreme Court decisions which treat such actions, whether by irate taxpayers, women's organizations, civil rights groups, or peace organizations, as basic exercises of free assembly protected by the First Amendment. Yet here, too, the court will draw some lines of public order, as in 1967, when a majority of the court upheld a breach of the peace conviction of Dr. Martin Luther King. In all these cases, difficult problems confront the justices. What is the ideal balance to be kept between the claims of liberty and the needs for public order? Each case presents its unique blend of events, rules, and values. But the Supreme Court today has its finger on the scale marked Liberty with a determination that has never been as true before in the court's history.
1: The heavy involvement of the modern court with questions of civil liberties has been accompanied by an equally heavy and perhaps even more dramatic concern with questions of civil rights. President John F. Kennedy dramatized this in his famous civil rights address before a national television audience in June 1963.
9: This nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. In short, every American ought to have the right to be treated as he would wish to be treated, as one would wish uh, his children to be treated. But this is not the case. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. Next week, I shall ask the Congress of the United States to act to make a commitment it is not fully made in this century to the proposition that race has no place in American life or law. The federal judiciary has upheld that proposition In a series of forthright cases, but in too many communities, in too many parts of the country. Wrongs are inflicted on Negro citizens, and there are no remedies at law. They have a right to expect that the law will be fair, that the Constitution will be colorblind, as Justice Harlan said at the turn of the century.
1: Major decisions on civil rights have brought the modern Supreme Court as much attention, praise, and criticism. As any of its predecessors since the founding of the Republic. Robert B. McKay, Dean of the College of Law at New York University, takes a long view of the Court's work in the area of
0: civil rights. President Kennedy's theme of equal rights and equal opportunities without regard to race or color was anticipated in an apt phrase that appeared in a Supreme Court decision a generation ago. Speaking for the court in 1939, the late Justice Frankfurter said that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States stands as a barrier against sophisticated as well as simple-minded modes of discrimination. But this statement of principle has until recent years been honored more in rhetoric than in practice. The 14th Amendment was one of the Civil War Amendments approved by Congress and ratified by the states a hundred years ago. The 13th, Fourteenth and 15th Amendments were intended by their draftsmen to make meaningful for Negroes the freedom that had been secured in America's bloodiest war. The 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, abolished slavery. But when doubts were expressed whether that was a sufficient base for early civil rights legislation by Congress, the 14th Amendment was proposed and ratified in 1868. For the minority race, its most important provision was the statement that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. The Fifteenth Amendment was added in 1870 to make absolutely sure that no governmental limitation could be imposed on the right to vote. Although Congress promptly adopted a series of civil rights acts between 1866 and 1875, the temper of the nation then changed. And when Congress and the public stopped caring about equal rights for the Negro, so it seems did the Supreme Court. State after southern state adopted its own black code, and segregation of the races became a fact of American life. For all practical purposes, even the vote was taken away from the Negroes, and by the end of the 19th century, the southern states were able to reduce their Negro citizens to positions of economic dependence, social inferiority, and political impotence. For many years, the Supreme Court did nothing to stem this popular tide. Indeed, in 1896, in the Plessy v. Ferguson decision, the court... With only Justice Harlan objecting, sustained the right to segregate the races in railway cars. From this came the doctrine of separate but equal, which maintained that segregated facilities were constitutional where equal accommodations for both races were provided. Justice Harlan protested bitterly that our constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. And he continued prophetically, the thin disguise of equal accommodations will not mislead anyone, nor atone for the wrong this day done. The Plessy decision made possible increasingly rigid segregation as a matter of law in the South and as a matter of fact in the North. And it was to be 40 years before cases challenging the constitutionality of segregation again received serious court consideration. During the 1930s and 1940s, Attempts were made from time to time to induce the court to review particular instances of segregation, as, for example, in state law schools and other public institutions of higher education. These attempts were, by and large, successful, and the court's rigid position on segregation was modified. It became increasingly clear, both to the justices and to the country at large, that a completely new look at the doctrine was necessary. This came in 1954 with the justly famous case of Brown v. Board of Education. There the court ruled that separate but equal doctrine was not consistent with the 14th Amendment's requirement of equal protection of the laws, at least in the case of public schools. In the field of public education, Chief Justice Warren said for a unanimous court, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. This time it was the court, among the branches of government, that supplied leadership, and new direction. The school desegregation decision may well be the most publicized Supreme Court decision of the century, but other far-ranging civil rights decisions have followed. Thus, under high court rulings, segregation required or enforced with governmental support is no longer permissible, whether in schools, transportation, parks, playgrounds, or public housing. The court has even ruled that ostensibly private segregation is forbidden where the state is asked to enforce private efforts To achieve racial segregation. In the field of civil rights, the modern court has reawakened the public conscience to the relevant constitutional guarantees and it has provided a comprehensive legal foundation for equality between the races. In so doing, the court laid the groundwork for the first significant civil rights legislation in the United States Congress since the years just after the Civil War. THE SUPREME COURT TODAY IS A VITAL AND
1: ACTIVE PART OF THE GOVERNMENT OF THE UNITED STATES. UNDER THE LEADERSHIP OF CHIEF JUSTICE EARL WARREN, APPOINTED BY PRESIDENT EISENHOWER IN 1953, THE COURT HAS SPOKEN OUT ON THE MAJOR ISSUES OF OUR GENERATION, PROVOKING AT TIMES CRITICISM AND CONTROVERSY, REMINISCENT OF THE STORMS WHICH HAVE GATHERED OVER STRONG COURTS IN THE PAST. Yet President Eisenhower perhaps spoke best for those Americans who looked to the highest court in the land for guidance on constitutional matters, when called upon to comment at a time when the Supreme Court was under heavy fire, he pointed to its abiding value.
6: Our system of government, in my opinion, could not uh, exist without an independent judiciary. I still believe that the United States respects the Supreme Court and looks to it as one of the great stabilizing influences in this country to keep us going from one extreme to the other.